Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Imagine you've grown up your whole life at war with another nation. In fact, your people and them have been at war for what seems like all of history. And then one day, the leader of that enemy nation reaches out to you to make peace. And you find that you and that leader have an incredible bond. One that turns from former enemies into family. And you see that friendship that the two of you forge could very well be the difference in stopping an even greater threat from overwhelming and destroying your two peoples. Well, that is the tale of Poundmaker and Crowfoot, two of the last great chiefs of the Plains First Nations. They lived during a tumultuous and tragic period in First Nations history and rose to prominence both amongst their respective peoples and amongst the Canadians arriving in greater numbers into their traditional territories. They were both warriors, peacemakers, allies, and eventually family. This is Season 5, Episode 3, The Buffalo Alliance, Poundmaker, and Crowfoot. Our story begins in the early 1880s, when a young boy named Pitikwahanapowin was born to a Cree mother and a Stony father. The Stony and the Cree had lived side by side in what is now the central plains of modern Saskatchewan. They had lived side by side for generations. Both were semi-nomadic, horse-bearing peoples whose lives revolved around hunting game, most importantly the buffalo. Both the Cree and the Stony peoples had also grown up with similar enemies, the Sioux, who lived on the plains of what is now the U.S. states of Montana and North Dakota, and as well their enemy, the Blackfoot, historically occupying the southern plains of modern-day Alberta and Saskatchewan. Poundmaker, as the child came to be known, thus grew up a child of two allied First Nations who were constantly at war with their enemies, the Sioux and the Blackfoot. Both his father and mother died when Poundmaker was young, 
and he was adopted into a Cree family where he was raised close to Battle River in modern-day Saskatchewan in the area now known as Poundmaker's Reserve. His birth father was a revered shaman and buffalo hunter, and much of this skill and connection with the spirit world was passed down to Poundmaker. As a young man, Poundmaker earned a reputation as a skilled buffalo hunter and soon developed a following amongst the young Cree who looked to him for communion with the buffalo. It was said that the spirits of the buffalo spoke to Poundmaker as he showed a preternatural ability to herd small groups of buffalo into ideal killing zones where other hunters waited to strike. In fact, Poundmaker's communion with the buffalo earned him a reputation beyond just his Cree band. Even the dreaded enemy, the Blackfoot, knew of this young man with spiritual gifts. Poundmaker was not only a skilled hunter, but also developed into a well-respected leader, as he was notoriously generous with those around him. He was outgoing, and he was quite gregarious. The mid-19th century, however, was a tumultuous period for the First Nations of the Plains. Disease had ravaged the population. Older, powerful tribes found themselves heavily weakened and thus vulnerable to challenges from smaller tribes. Power struggles erupted as newer groups sought to overthrow the traditional powers on the Plains. Thus, There was no shortage of opportunity for violence. Yet it seems that Poundmaker developed a reputation not so much as a warrior, but as a negotiator and peacemaker, a role highly valued in many communities throughout the plains. Yet it is hard to believe that Poundmaker did not participate in some of the ritualistic aspects of plains warfare. For by the time he was in his 20s, he was relatively wealthy in horses and had developed a reputation as an emerging Cree leader. His wealth and reputation was earned partly through his actions within his tribe, so settling disputes, making friends, keeping alliances, but also through participation in raiding neighboring enemy tribes. Poundmaker like other young Cree, entered into manhood via the ritualistic killing of a Blackfoot enemy and the stealing of his horses. By his early thirties, Poundmaker, now an emerging leader within the Cree nation as a whole, had married to a woman named Little Beaver and then again to her widowed sister, Grasswoman. He now had two wives, a first child on the way, wealth and respect, His name was known beyond the boundaries of the Cree nation, even amongst his people's traditional enemies. Yet it was still a surprise when, either sometime in 1871 or 1872, Poundmaker was invited to meet with the famous Blackfoot war chief, Crowfoot. Crowfoot was born sometime in the late 1820s or early 1830s and was originally part of the Blood Tribe. The Bloods were part of a larger Blackfoot confederacy, but retained their cultural independence from the Blackfoot and Pegan, the third main tribe in the confederacy. However, when Crowfoot was still a boy, his parents both died, and he was adopted into a Blackfoot family. 
As a young man, Crowfoot gained a reputation amongst the Blackfoot as a brave warrior, fighting in numerous battles and being wounded six different times. In fact, the last wound he received was a musket ball in his back, which he got during a raid on a Shoshone camp. The musket ball was never removed. By his early 20s, he had collected enough horses through raiding to begin breeding them, and this translated into great wealth and status amongst the Blackfoot people. Now, while his adopted family was not a family of chiefs, Crowfoot's wealth, coupled with his reputation as a warrior, led to him obtaining the rank of a minor chief by the time he was in his mid-30s. Crowfoot proved his leadership in 1865 at the famous Battle of Three Ponds between the Blackfoot and Cree. This is near modern-day Hobima, Alberta. Now, a Jesuit priest had witnessed the battle. In fact, that Jesuit priest was shot by accident during the battle, or we think it was by accident. And the priest wrote about how Crowfoot came to the rescue of the Blackfoot camp that had been ambushed by a Cree war party. Apparently, Crowfoot showed up in the nick of time, turning the tide of battle and scattering the Cree attackers. The Jesuits' letters went public, and Crowfoot became known even amongst the scattered white settlements in and around Blackfoot territory. Crowfoot, in fact, sought to develop friendly relations with the whites that seemed to be growing in greater and greater numbers. He became well-known for engaging in talks with Hudson's Bay Company traders, government agents, and members of the clergy. In the early 1870s, when a smallpox epidemic killed a number of the older Blackfoot chiefs, Crowfoot, this man who was sort of seeking an entente with the white population, suddenly found himself elevated to the leadership of the Blackfoot people. He was considered an oddity, though, for he desired to keep the peace between the Blackfoot and Whites, and in fact, in 1876, a diplomatic party from the Sioux formally requested the Blackfoot join them in their war against the Americans. This war, by the way, was led by the famous Sitting Bull, who we talk about in Season 4, Episode 14. Now, Crowfoot declined the Sioux offer. And he told the Sioux that even a Sioux-Blackfoot alliance, as powerful as it was, could not stand up to the might of the American and Canadian governments combined. And soon, Crowfoot went even further in his desire for peace. Before we continue, I just want to remind all of you great folks out there that if you go to our Facebook page or website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. I'll be perfectly honest with you, this podcast runs heavily on donations. Both of the links that you find on Facebook or our homepage provide safe, secure, and easy ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, so like two bucks a month or $100 forever. Patreon, however, allows you to set up regular preset donations. So if you want to donate two bucks for every episode we publish, you can set that up on Patreon. Again, we survive heavily on your donations. And every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this podcast. And we thank everybody out there who has donated so far. As well, on our Facebook page and on iTunes, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. Now back to the regularly scheduled program. 
By the mid to late 1870s, Crowfoot was tired of war. He had lost a son of his own to warfare, and he couldn't bear to watch his people die in continual combat with the Cree. Poundmaker's reputation as a level-headed negotiator and good orator had impressed Crowfoot, and thus Crowfoot sought to forge an alliance with the young Cree leader in an effort to help make peace between two warring nations. Now, Poundmaker was suspicious of Crowfoot, for it was not 20 years before that a Cree leader, Maskipatoon, was murdered by the Blackfoot when drawn to their encampment under calls for peace talks. Yet things had changed by the 1870s. Disease had ravaged the Plains communities. More and more whites were arriving from the east. American whiskey traders were openly defying American and Canadian laws against whiskey trading with the First Nations. Things in general were not looking good. Crowfoot, and soon Poundmaker, realized that unity in the face of these threats gave them hope for their combined future. Now, Another fascinating aspect of this peace offering was the fact that Poundmaker apparently resembled Crowfoot's dead son. For Crowfoot, he heard of this remarkable likeness, and when he first met Poundmaker, he felt as if his dead son had inhabited the spirit and body of the Cree man. There was an immediate connection, and Poundmaker then spent the winter with Crowfoot and his people. Now, while Crowfoot guaranteed Poundmaker's safety, Poundmaker spoke of how the Blackfoot youth were often heard debating whether to kill Poundmaker anyways, especially when whiskey entered the camp. Poundmaker said he would always sleep with his Remington revolver cocked and loaded by his side. Now, Poundmaker survived the winter, and he spent many long nights eating talking and smoking with Crowfoot and the other Blackfoot elders. Poundmaker made an incredible impression on the Blackfoot leadership, and especially on Crowfoot. And Crowfoot, in fact, officially adopted Poundmaker as his son. When Poundmaker returned to his own people in early spring, peace with the Blackfoot was now a real possibility. That same spring, Poundmaker then traveled throughout Cree territory, preaching the coming peace. He told his people that Crowfoot was honest and sincere with his desire to ally with the Cree and convinced many chiefs and many warriors that united they stood a chance against the oncoming wave of white settlement. By the end of that spring, a widely accepted peace had been established. Not only that... But Poundmaker was finally recognized as a chief of the Cree. While he was always respected as a young man, it was his ability to create a connection with the legendary Crowfoot and to secure a peace between the Cree and the Blackfoot that had catapulted him into Cree chiefdom. It should be noted, though, for our listeners, that there were many Cree chiefs. Some were older and more respected, and others were relatively younger and newer. It's important to stress that the Cree, like many First Nations, were a decentralized political and social entity. Tribes, bands, clans, and even family units were often left to make their own political decisions. Thus, 
Poundmaker had ascended into the ranks of the Cree leadership, but was not yet the preeminent Cree that he would become. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. In 1885, this Cree-Blackfoot alliance was finally put to the test. The detailed events of what would become the Northwest Rebellion can be found in some capacity in Season 2, Episode 4, but a few key points are worth noting here. The migration of white settlers had continued unabated throughout the 1870s and into the early 1880s. At the same time, Overhunting of the buffalo, primarily via fur trapping expeditions in the United States, had seen this precious resource nearly wiped out. Coupled with the ravages of disease, numerous Cree and Blackfoot tribes had been convinced to accept the Canadian government's offer of food, housing, and education, provided those tribes moved to government-sponsored reserves. Yet the government failed to fulfill even its most basic promises, and most tribes found themselves even worse off than before, while also now subject to the corrupt whims of their local Indian agent. With more whites coming, frustration boiled over. In 1885, Métis activist Louis Riel returned from exile to lead another resistance to the Canadian government. Now, this episode is not going to go over the intimate details of what would become the 1885 Northwest Rebellion. We're going to do that in another episode. Suffice it to say, an alliance of Cree, Métis, and a small number of Blackfoot rose up to resist the Canadian government. Poundmaker was one of the key Cree leaders. A series of small battles were fought between Canadian government forces and the First Nations Métis Alliance. The rebels won all but the last and most important battle, the Battle of Batoche, May 9th to 12th, 1885, something we cover in Season 2, Episode 4. It was at Batoche that the Canadian government forces inflicted a serious defeat on the rebels and ended the Northwest Rebellion. Now, while Poundmaker was a key figure in the Cree-Métis alliance and became one of the most prominent leaders of the rebellion as a whole, his entrance into the rebellion was rather dubious. Poundmaker and his people were frustrated with the continual failure of the Canadian government to live up to its promises. And when Poundmaker and a party of his people rode to North Battleford in late April 1885 to speak with the local Indian agent about problems on his reserve, the agent and many whites in North Battleford assumed Poundmaker was coming to attack. Though almost all of the first-hand accounts suggest Poundmaker's intentions were entirely peaceful. In early May, a mixed force of Canadian military personnel and Northwest Mounted Police attacked Poundmaker's camp at Cut Knife Hill. 
the Canadian government force was defeated. When the Canadians finally retreated, Poundmaker held his warriors back, not allowing them to pursue the fleeing Canadians. But Poundmaker now found himself a rebel, whether intentional or not. When Riel was defeated at Batoche later that month, Poundmaker turned himself in. Crowfoot, on the other hand, shocked many of his followers and allies when he chose to pledge neutrality instead of rising up to fight the Canadian government. Overnight, Crowfoot was lionized by the Canadian press and politicians, many of whom publicly thanked Crowfoot. Why did he not go to war alongside his adopted son, you ask? Well, despite the peace between the two nations, Crowfoot's own people were reluctant to fight alongside their historical enemies. As well, Crowfoot understood that the white populations of Canada, especially in the provinces of Manitoba, Ontario, and Quebec, were more numerous than the Blackfoot and Cree combined, And this was ultimately what led him to avoid conflict with the, and I quote, warriors of the Great Mother, end quote. Crowfoot had actually toured several Canadian cities prior to the outbreak of war, and this had a significant impact on him and his decision-making in 1885. Thus, Crowfoot watched his now-adopted son go to war in a conflict that Crowfoot believed no First Nations could win. Crowfoot, meanwhile, stayed neutral. In the aftermath of the war, the leaders of the First Nations that rose up were arrested. Eight were executed for treason against the Canadian government, while a much larger number were imprisoned. Crowfoot actively sought to have Poundmaker pardoned. He attempted to use his new influence within the Canadian government, influence which had increased because of his neutrality, which many in the Canadian government considered a key factor in the rebellion's failure. Now, while Poundmaker was at first imprisoned, Crowfoot's activism was successful. Poundmaker was pardoned in 1886, though tragically he died only four months after his release while living with Crowfoot on Crowfoot's reserve. Crowfoot himself was heartbroken. Crowfoot's remaining days were generally unhappy ones. He sought to use his influence and notoriety to advocate on behalf of his people, and like most other First Nation leaders, he was generally ignored. He died in the winter of the Great Snow in the year 1889, having seen most of his children, his wives, and his favorite adopted son all go before him. He was the last great chief of the Blackfoot Confederacy, and had reached a level of fame within white Canada that had rarely been achieved by any First Nations leader. Though his long life meant he was forced to watch the tragic demise of his people as a result of the expansionist and exterminationist policies of the newest nation to arrive onto the prairies, Canada. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.